That's Teresa Tang, and that was absolutely beautiful. Every week, you know, it's always rather exciting to welcome Jayang Javeri back on the show for another interesting journey into the life and music of some amazing fe- female vocalists. And this week, Jayang takes us to Taiwan to meet Teresa Tang, who you've just heard there, an iconic female vocalist, often referred to as the voice of Asia and Asia's eternal queen of pop. Teresa Tang was a singer, actress, musician, and philanthropist. And let me welcome Jayang, who can tell us all about her. Good afternoon to you, Jayang. Good afternoon, Saudia. Very nice to see you once again. Lovely to have you. And every week, it's really, as I said, you know, it's actually I've learned so much about some amazing, iconic singers. Really, so I'm really quite excited because she sounded. It was so sweet. It was really lovely. The track that you chose. Really very well, sweet. yeah, the track itself is called Tian Mimi. That means very sweet or as sweet as honey. Mm-hmm. And she's got this lovely, sweet voice, uh, which is just absolutely dripping with honey. And um, as you rightly mentioned, she is uh, known as the queen of Asian pop. And in fact, she defined the very essence of what is known as Mando pop this, these days, Mandarin pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used, to, it used to be said that wherever there are Chinese people, there is the music of Teresa Tang. Wow. It's a cultural icon, much loved and revered throughout Greater China, and in fact, the whole of Southeast Southeast Asia. Oh, she well, she is um, quite mesmerizing, uh, and and she was quite um, she was quite young. I mean, like you know, she started off quite young, but she was, you know, she had a short life anyway. But tell me about how she started. Well, you know, she's she may have had a short life, but she had a career spanning almost thirty years. Oh wow! And sold over thirty million copies worldwide, and a third of that was in Japan. Gosh, interestingly. Mm. So um, she was born on the twenty ninth of January, nineteen fifty three, to a poor family, and her father was a soldier in the Taiwanese army, and. Her talent for music was discovered when she was just three, oh, no. and it was in fact a family friend who was a musician, an arhu player. You know, arhu, the Chinese violin with two mm-hmm, strings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he heard her, and he said, "Wow, this girl, her, she's got a pitch perfect voice, and she's got such a sweet timbre, and above all, she had got a very, she had a very sweet demeanor, which immediately endeared her to whoever kind of listened to her." Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, let me train her. So he trained her. From the age of three, you're talking. This is when she was really discovered as such. Yeah. And then she started singing in competitions and giving performances. And, you know, she was able to support her family through her singing. Um, And so her father let her quit school and pursue music as a professional career. And in 1968, when she was um, 15 years, she hosted her uh, TV show, wow. and that is, how, and she got her first recording contract. And by that time, she could support her family and uh, give them a very comfortable life. And this is at the age of 15. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you know, if you notice something about the women that we have profiled yeah, in the yeah. series. So all these women came from very humble backgrounds and they made it big. There's a very, uh, there's a consistent pattern in their life stories. And it tells you a lot about what success means and And what it takes. takes. Mm. It's also, yeah, it's also interesting that, you know, um, 
like when you have mentioned a number of these women, you know, they came from quite poor, humble backgrounds, as you said, and they were supporting their families, but they never, you know, none of them ever sort of became sort of divas or anything like that. They always had their feet on the ground and they were always there. They didn't even, even in terms of their looks or their dress, and they, they kept their feet on the ground. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, it helped that Teresa Tung was very, very sweet looking. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of the other women, um, it was the sheer force of their talent. Yeah. Um, whether it was Lata Mangeshkar or her sister Asha Bosley from India, uh, Cesaria Ivora from uh, uh, Cape Verde, mm -hmm. um, and then um, Nana Mushkuri from Greece, who was also from a family. Remember that um, her parents could not afford music lessons for both the sisters, both the sisters. So they had to opt. Mm -hmm. um, you had Ella Fitzgerald, whom we knew had very, very humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you see that all of these ladies, they became, um, they achieved colossal statures. That's right. And yet, even in their stardom amidst all the adulation and the um, public, uh, um, reverence that they got, they remained very grounded women. They remained uh, in touch with their roots. They, a lot of them lived very humbly. Yeah. I mean, I have visited, for instance, Lata Mangeshka's apartment in Bombay, and it's just something that you would expect a middle-class Indian family to live in. Nothing ostentatious, nothing over the top. The, nothing like ostentatious yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, I suppose it was, it is raw talent. It is amazing, gifted talent that they do have, which obviously has developed through training and things like that. But it is very much the essence of them, isn't it? That is correct, I think. And it's also striving for perfection and mm -hmm. never um, uh, flinching from putting in the hours and the. Um, effort needed to get to perfection. Mm. Now, back to Teresa, she um, really, you know, if she started at the age of 15, then she must have just been a, a known quantity. I mean, everyone would have known her because sudden stardom at that age is no joke, really, is it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and um, in fact, um, starting the early 70s, she ventured into Japan mm -hmm. and like many of these women uh, that we have profiled, she was also an accomplished linguist. Uh, she sang in not only in Mandarin, uh, but also in Cantonese, Hokkien, Japanese, and she spoke those languages. Oh, wow. Apart from, of course, English and uh, later on French. Apparently, she's also recorded songs in Italian and in, Indone in Bahasa Indonesia. That's another thing that we've seen with some of these female vocalists, that they are singing in different languages as well, because that seems to just be something that comes natural to them too in terms of learning, because it's no joke learning a language, and certainly singing in a language is a separate thing in itself. But, but that's a, that seems to be another consistent thing that you do see. That's true, because ultimately what happens is language is sound, mm -hmm. and these women are masters of sound. Mm -hmm. They've got extremely sharp ears and well-trained uh, brains, musical brains. So it's very easy for them to pick up the nuances of a new language and to um, sing in any given language because it's just a matter of sound and getting the sound right. 
Oh, well, I'm completely <laughs> overwhelmed by that. That's amazing. So now how were her years like? So from 15, she was pretty much, you know, out there. And was sure. it a consistent, was it a, a continuous move into her career? There was no kind of real trials or tribulations as such, was there? No, not really. Um, her career graph just goes up and up and up. And again, that is something which defines most of the women that we have met mm -hmm. uh, through this journey. Mm. Um, they may have had some personal setbacks in their personal lives, but never really in their professional careers. Um, so she becomes a rage in Japan uh, beginning in 1973. And then she got a little, got into a bit of trouble with Japan as well. Apparently, <laughs> right. you know, in those days, um, Japan and Taiwan had a diplomatic <laughs> spat. So she being Taiwanese couldn't travel. So she did something rather naughty, she came to Hong Kong and bought herself an Indonesian passport. <laughs> right. And well, she was caught in Japan. And she right. was deported. Okay. Yeah. And she was banned, barred from Japan for a while, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, this was uh, in 1979. <laughs> but uh, closer to home, it was around 75 that she um, made her mark in Hong Kong. In fact, with her first performance was at the Lee Theatre here in Causeway Bay. Oh, wow. 1975. And, uh -huh. Yeah, and that is also the time when she uh, began uh, her uh, 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 long association with uh, Polygram, the record company. Uh, released a lot of singles and albums here in Hong Kong, uh, became a cult figure here. Mm -hmm. And um, it did help that she sang in Cantonese mm -hmm. and did a lot of charity work. In fact, uh, the Yan Chai Hospital in Hong Kong, it's, be it's because of her efforts. She raised in 1980 about 8 million Hong Kong dollars for wow. that through her shows. Fantastic. And through her life, she has been doing a lot of charity work. For a while, she even went to, um, uh, I think it was uh, the University of um, uh, Southern California, or was it UCLA, one of the two, to study uh, mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was, the, this was the time when, you know, she couldn't travel to Japan, so she decided to go to the States. Oh, well, she made use um, of the time anyway. That's important. <laughs> yeah. But, but the most interesting part of it is this, that... Um, you know, because China was obviously going through a lot of transition in the 70s. And um, because of uh, many reasons, which I'm sure the listeners would know, um, uh, her music was not allowed on the mainland. Okay. So people were barred from listening to her music. However, as luck would have it, in 1977, um, she came up with this song, um, The Moon Represents My Heart. Mm -hmm. which we're going to listen to at the end of the program. Mm -hmm. Because that is the one song that truly and uh, uh, really um, uh, very um, authentically defines who Theresa Tung was. And it's the most iconic song of um, uh, Chinese popular music. And so that song uh, was heard in China either through uh, on the mainland or either through shortwave radios, and later on through smuggle tapes and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And people said, wow, I mean, we have never heard something like this. And she became an absolute rage there. Oh. For years afterwards, you know, she, the radio never played her songs. It's only in the 90s that they started playing her songs, and especially after her passing in 1996. Mm. So um, 1996 is when she passed away. Was that... She was very young. She was, what, 42? She was quite young. 
Yes, yes, she did. But before we get to that, um, there was an interregnum there. And um, in 1983, mm -hmm. she went back to Japan. I okay. suppose that she, they uh, couldn't... They, okay. they, they really she was allowed back, right? Yeah, she was. I mean, you know, it's it's like this, right? Uh, right? I mean, um, music does cross borders. Mm -hmm. And everything is forgotten and forgiven. There, there, there are other similar cases which happened with other ladies um, in our in the series that uh, we've just covered. You know, where somebody like Umukultum, for instance, even brokered a, a a truce between Tunisia and Egypt. Yes, because of a three-hour conversation yes, I remember that she it. had with the president of Tunisia. I mean, he <laughs> totally, completely dropped all his enmity. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? That's really great. Yeah. What? Tell me about her music. I mean, was there a particular? You you were mentioning the whole pop side of things, but mm -hmm. was there a focus of her music in terms of a, a specific style or a type of music that she usually went for? Because I mean, the the track we heard was incredibly sort of sweet and melodic and and romantic. It seemed. So was that always the case, or did she specialize in sort of more political or other types of music? Well, um, she mostly focused on romantic songs. Mm -hmm. Her music was a very fine blend of um, uh, Chinese traditional and Western music. Um, in fact, the song that you heard in the beginning, interestingly, was an Indonesian folk song. Oh, okay. And yes, and she's also sung it in the original language. Wow, it is lovely. It was really uh, yeah. nice. Yeah, and mm. um, I think it's um, in a, a boatman song or some such if I remember correctly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but her music was uh, marked by very restrained yet uh, uh, full singing uh, pitch perfect uh, uh, music and which and she had such a beautiful and lovely tone and timbre which mm -hmm. really got you mm, no it goes to the heart absolutely and is her music now I mean she she passed away but you know, is it still alive in terms of people are listening to it? And are we talking about younger generations too, as well as people who appreciated it at that time? Sadia, if you go to any karaoke bar mm -hmm. in Greater China or Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. it's her songs oh. which are sung most often. Okay, so it's still there. And obviously yeah. everyone's still enjoying them in all ages. Yeah. And uh, one more thing before... Um, uh, we get to her legacy. There's one one very interesting thing about her is that she was a big proponent of traditional Chinese poetry. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, in the 80s, if I uh, remember correctly, she released an album of poems from the Tang Dynasty, which was set to music. Wow. And, uh, she, and she said so somewhere that, you know, she'd like to see more of China, China's traditional poem, poetry and literature come out like this and um, um, make the world aware of it, not only the younger generation. I assume so some I of that is still played, that if it was an album, then it's still available and people must be listening to it. Because it's an education in itself, isn't it, that? Absolutely. And so, um, uh, as I said, you know, it's uh, uh, there's the song that we are going to hear at the end of the show, which is The Moon Represents My Heart, it's um uh it was um i mean just look if you if you want to study her legacy you all that you have to look at uh, is that's that particular song which um um in 96 there was a film made by peter chan called comrades almost a love story and it featured her songs 
and it won the best film in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and uh, it had a subplot about her life and her tragedy, mm-hmm. a tragic wow. end. And in 1999, our very own RTHK uh, conducted a poll to find out the top 10 Chinese songs of all time. Mm -hmm. And this song was number one. Wow, that's good. That's a nice link to RTHK there. (laughs) So we will be playing that song towards the end of the the session. Oh, wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Gosh. And so she passed away on May the 8th, 95. Mm-hmm. from a severe asthma in Chiang Mai in Thailand where she was vacationing with her French fiancé, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Kukiri, if I get his name right. She was 42, very young, and then her remains were brought to Taipei for a state funeral which was attended by hundreds of thousands of people and she was um, uh, buried with full state honours, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, wow. everyone in attendance. The president was there. His entire cabinet was there. I mean, that's, that's, that is some power, isn't it, yeah. Sadia? Yeah, yeah. These women, I mean, like people like her, Um Kultum, Lata Mangeshkar, they, they just, weren't queens, they yeah. weren't presidents, they weren't prime ministers, and yet everyone just bowed their heads. Because they were just in people's hearts. It's, it's amazing the effect of music in that it does really bring people together and it stays in your heart. I mean, I, I'm i sure, you know, you are a musician and it, you only have to hear a certain track and then it takes you back and that attachment, and you certainly have that attachment anyway because you have such sort of passion for some of these um, singers. Sure. But, you know, that is the power of music, isn't it? That it does stay with you and it has sure. this impact. You know, and there's another thing about her songs, since we we are speaking about her. If you, at least musically speaking, these compositions are not very complex. In fact, some of them are as simple as nursery rhymes. Mm -hmm. But it is the singing Mm -hmm. which makes them extraordinary. I mean, she just raises them to another level because of her interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's why they they have become so timeless. Yeah, And that's Uh, why everybody wants to try and attempt them. I mean... You've got big artists um, uh, in the West who have tried singing her songs. Um, people like John Bon Jovi, for God's sake. Oh, really? Um, Gosh. And has Kenny anyone G's done got albums, anywhere near um, it at all? No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's very hard I haven't to, tried listening to him singing her songs. <laughs> but I do know that Nana Mushkuri has attempted them, and I'm sure that might have been something quite quite interesting to listen to. But every single canto pop singer has tried, oh, tried her songs. Everybody from... Um, um, uh, Alan Tam to Leslie Cheung to um, uh, Fei Wong mm-hmm. and the rest. And let me ask you, I always ask you this at the end of the session, and when did she come into your life? <laughs> when did you hear um, her? In, and, actually, you know. you know, sadly, she came into my life the day she passed away. Oh, really? On May the 8th, 96, I was listening to a BBC News broadcast and uh-huh. um, they announced her passing away. And when I started listening to these songs, I said, wait a minute, that sounds very familiar, you know, it sounds very, very familiar. And I couldn't believe that I've been listening to this voice for ever since I was in Hong Kong, which is now a full 35 years, mind you. Wow. Um, And um, it was this great lady. She was quite amazing. You know, and I had had no no real, I mean, you know, I I was not that exposed to her. And yet there was a sense of sadness when you heard that um, she died so young at 42 and after doing so much. Uh, mm. for music 
and as well as, of course, for philanthropy. Mm, yeah, she well, she was amazing. Um, Jiang, all I can say is thank you because you know you've exposed such amazing things to us in terms of some of these ladies, and I was just going to say that actually, um, next week we. I'm going to turn the tables a wee bit here because mm. I want to speak to you next week because what we're going to do is we're going to take a break from the female vocalists and we're going to focus a little bit more on male vocalists. But before we right. do, um, I'm going to speak to you next week and ask you a little bit about your music interests and where it started from you. So next week... I'm pulling JJ out of the box, <laughs> so we shall talk to him. And <laughs> That's a scary thought, but I shall comply. <laughs> you can, and then you can choose your two or three favourite tracks that you like, and we'll make sure that we play those as well. So now we have about a minute, so we've got the news coming up at two, but I do want to end with Teresa Tung. And uh, so do you want to just tell me a wee bit more about this track that we're going to play, and then we'll so go into it. So this is her all-time favorite and her most iconic song, The Moon Represents My Heart, which in Mandarin is, and let me get it, get this right, Yueliang Tai Piao Wo De Xin. And it was made famous by her, although it was she was not the first one to record it. It was recorded initially in 73 by another singer. And when she sang it in 77, it just became, it, it, it achieved cult status uh, and it's become immortal. And everywhere that you find Chinese people, and if you play this song, you're bound to get them mesmerized. You, they, they'll have a tear in their eye, and um, they just sing along with it. Well, Jiang, thank you very much for today, and I look forward to having you back on JJ's Music Rock next week when we will feature some of your music and some of your inspirations. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Shame 